0: are saying, Bolsonaro, you can't be like this anymore, and we're going to kill you, and that's, that's what's happening. When he won the election, that's what we did. We decided to do a mass wedding.
1: When I read them first, I felt seen, empowered in a way. Until then, it was assumed that the holders of human rights, it was assumed that they were
2: heterosexual. When they reversed it is when we said, now, what do people do? Go back into the closet. And that got me angry. You're talking about lives here. You're talking about real people here. The
3: fight for freedom still continues. If you don't fight, nobody will fight for you. We have to fight for our rights as human beings.
4: This podcast takes us to Uganda, Brazil and India, where LGBT people are targeted and silenced simply for how they dress, who they choose to love, for who they are, who they want to be. And these are by no means the only places. 68 states criminalise homosexuality, six of them punish it with the death penalty. Brunei just introduced death by stoning for homosexuals. But the last decade has also seen a lot of progress and change. The World Health Organisation will no longer classify trans people as mentally ill. And states are starting to let trans people change the gender on their documents without undergoing surgery yet there's often still stigma and prejudice.
1: Our voices! Our choices!
4: I'm Abby Darcy, and welcome to the third in the series of the Gender Politics podcast from the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Our voices, our choices. This series talks to people whose voices often go unheard or are censored, whose choices don't conform to laws or customs. It's about people fighting for their basic human rights. We look at the power of female protest we unpick the politics of women's reproductive rights. And first stop in this podcast is India. Sunil Mehra tours India performing stories written by feminist Indian authors,
2: who he calls free radicals and sexual subversives. The ideas they come to be entertained, but subliminally, if the message of autonomy, of agency gets across to them... Our mission is accomplished.
4: Sunil is a celebrated journalist, author and yoga teacher, although he may well be best known for helping change the lives of the estimated 8 million LGBT people in India. Sunil and his partner put their names on a petition to the Supreme Court. In 2018, it finally struck down a law which had criminalised homosexuality for the last 160 years. It was an extraordinarily long struggle. Cases had bounced between courts for over two decades. Ten years ago, a Delhi High Court had even ruled in favour of decriminalisation, only to see its decision overturned four years later by the Supreme Court.
2: When they reversed it is when we said, now what do people do? Go back into the closet. So that became traumatic for a lot of people. We had these two Supreme Court lawyers who were our yoga students. We were rather outraged when... Over a coffee, after a yoga session, these girls told us that the judge went on record to say, "Oh, you know, are there gay people in India? There's a man who overturned the ruling. And that actually got me angry. Actually, I was fluttering and I said, what the hell are you talking about? You're talking about lives here. You're talking about real people here. So I was in disbelief. And I think that is what led up to us filing. Maybe he needs to see some real gay people. No tail, no horns, contributing members of society.
4: Sunil says that class and privilege has protected him. He could always be open to his family and friends. What's really important, he says, is that this message gets to the kids growing up with a lot less privilege. And even more importantly, the message gets to their parents.
2: I think jubilation should be tempered by the realisation that this is just step one in a long, long journey. Are you allowed to marry? No. Do you have adoption rights? No. This is one glimmer of hope, fine, but there's so much else that's so dark in this country right now.
5: I think the understanding that all people have the same rights is not really embedded and the context of sexual orientation. It's not very much covered in constitutions, for example. There are only... Only nine constitutions worldwide addressing sexual orientation. Barbara
4: Unmüssig is the president of the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Even in Germany, there's a current petition to include sexual orientation in the country's non-discrimination article. Even where LGBT rights are specifically enshrined in a constitution, many states bar access to them with other conflicting laws.
5: Provisions in a constitution are an achievement. Uh, And then it's very important if a penal code, for example, is going to undermine what is provided by the constitution. And South Africa has one of the best constitutions, even in regard when it comes to sexual identity. But it's really then important if laws are in line with the constitution and if laws are really providing the protection gay, lesbians, transgender, intersex people need. Because, for example, in Tunisia, they have very good provisions in their brand-new constitution of uh, 2014. It it really says equal treatment, uh, no discrimination because of your sexual orientation, but the penal code is still in place. And the penal code is not yet amended to the new constitution. It's similar in Kenya.
4: Lawyers from Kenya's National Gay and Lesbian Commission are currently at the High Court with a potentially groundbreaking case, arguing that Kenya's penal code on homosexuality contravenes the non-discrimination
1: clause in its constitution. When people try to strike down laws that criminalise homosexuality, like it so successfully has been done in India, the Dr. Carter principles are being used. Sarah Court is from the Hirschfeld Eddy Foundation in
4: Berlin, working in the field of human rights for LGBT people. The Yogyakarta Principles, she mentioned, set out how human rights apply to LGBT people, and
1: they give recommendations to states of how to implement these rights. When I read them first, I felt sort of seen, I felt empowered in a way that they told me that I have all these rights and that I could go to my government and say, look, you should actually make sure that I can be living as freely as it's written here, but I can't, so please do something.
4: But you may be wondering, haven't we got the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, signed by virtually all of the world's states? Why do we need
1: the Yogyakarta principles? They were drafted in response to violence, to discrimination and hatred, that people worldwide, in virtually all countries of the world, suffer from just because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that is what, is what makes them a groundbreaking and pioneering document. Until then, it was assumed that the holders of human rights, it was assumed that they were heterosexual. It wasn't written, but it was just assumed. Only in 2006, with the drafting of the Jakarta principles, it was clear that also lesbians and gays, trans and intersex peoples and bisexuals cannot be deprived from human rights. As simple as that may sound, that was the groundbreaking effect that they had. What's crucial is that the Yogyakarta principles aren't a new
4: set of specialised laws for LGBT people. They merely identify how
5: existing human rights apply to LGBT people, too. LGBTI laws dehumanise them because different laws apply to them than cis or heterosexual people. Issues of violence mustn't be sidelined as gay issues because they are human rights issues. Barbara Unmusig again. I think LGBTI rights are a barometer for democracy and other human rights. And there is a direct positive correlation between democracy and human rights. A higher level of democracy in a country equates to better human rights protection. This is something we definitely can observe. <laughs> This
4: year's carnival in Rio de Janeiro, the parade competition was won by one of the oldest samba schools, Estação Primeira Primera de Mangueira. Their performance told the story of Brazil's unsung heroes, one of them, Mariel Franco, a city councillor who was killed in a drive-by shooting in 2018. She was black, a feminist, socialist, lesbian and LGBT activist from the favelas. Pretty unique in Brazilian politics. Brazil is said to have the highest murder rate of LGBT people in the world. So soon after Marielle's killing, the election of the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, sent more shockwaves through the LGBT community. On the campaign trail, Bolsonaro had made openly sexist, racist and homophobic remarks. And he won with a clear majority.
0: It was really hard for me because all my family voted for him. So I had big, huge fights with them, like, so you guys want me dead, <laughs> that's what you're saying. And basically that's what's happening because we see a lot of more violence on the streets and with people.
4: Lucila Chavez Alvarenga works at Casa Um in Sao Paulo, a centre which is home to a family of up to 20 LGBT people. Their real families have mostly rejected them. She says there'd been quite a bit of progress for LGBT people in Brazil. They can get married, trans people can change their documents, access hormone therapy and get counselling. There's now a real fear these rights will be taken away. It's
0: the first time I started being afraid last year. It's a big change and we started seeing like friends and family to have this radical thinking that and I'm like, okay, they don't really accept me, they just like, They were just being nice and now they are able not to be nice anymore they don't have to be polite anymore you know that's that's something that bolsonaro did he gave a voice to these people that so that's what we're seeing we're seeing on streets and people are saying bolsonaro you can't be like this anymore and we're gonna kill you and that's that's what's happening so when he won the election, that's what we did. We decided to do a mass wedding so we could um, provide this possibility because it's a, it was a wake-up call. Hey, let's do
4: this right now or we won't be able to do it. Kaza Um put out the word on social media planning a wedding for about five couples. Hundreds replied, and in the end they invited 40 couples. They crowdfunded the whole thing, draped Kaza um in white, fixed bouquets, and ordered rings and cakes. We started
0: getting in touch with some brands and some people we know that have clothes, and we said, hey, can you give us some wedding dresses? And it was a crazy, crazy week. (laughs) It was like a lot of work to do, but it was quite uh, emotional to see this and to be able to do this for, for all the people.
4: Officiating at the ceremony was Renata Carvalho, a trans performer. She's best known for playing a transgender Jesus in a Scottish play touring Brazil. She's had death threats. The play's been banned by regional courts, armed police dismantling the set during the performance. The mood is tense. Still, LGBT rights have not been restricted since Bolsonaro was sworn in.
6: It's going to sound awkward, but actually the right-wing opposition probably helps in waking people up, because it makes very clear that the gains that we've made, both in the LGBTI community, but as well in the women's movement,
4: they need to be defended. Julia Ert is programs director at ILGA World and was formerly the executive director of Transgender Europe. When I started
6: activism 15 years ago, I think the general understanding was, once rights that were gained, time would not be turned back. And I think there's an, an understanding nowadays that that is actually not true, that we have to defend those rights every day again and again. What we are seeing now in Europe is enormous progress in the legal sphere. I would as well argue enormous progress in terms of how trans people are perceived and around social acceptance, although we have a long way to go. But it's been an enormous transformation over the last decade. 15 years ago, trans issues would have been discussed or debated in a medical context. Persons suffering from psychological um, issues around acceptance of their bodies that would be rectified by sex reassignment surgeries, what the last 15 years have transformed in the approach to trans rights is that they have taken out trans issues from the medical psychological establishment, solidly putting them into the context of human
4: rights. That has been a huge leap forward, but as well a lot of work. Most countries which allow trans people to change their gender on official documents require proof the person has undergone surgery, or they have to undergo multiple psychiatric evaluations. Some states require them to be unmarried and not have dependent children.
6: Malta has done an amazing job
4: over the last maybe five, six years
6: from moving Malta basically from the 50s to being cutting edge globally on LGBTI rights. So they've introduced marriage equality, they've introduced constitutional protection on grounds of sexual orientation and gender identity, they've introduced a law that allows trans persons to change name and gender based on self-determination. In places like Finland, trans people require full sterilization in order to to change their gender marker in their birth certificate, which is, I, I would say, which is striking because Finland is very often thought of this human rights paradise, and it's not. So the Human Rights Council UPR mechanism made a recommendation to Finland that they should investigate that law and get rid of the sterilization requirement and, you, and Finland outright said no. In my
3: documents, I have male names and I don't like them. I've been trying to, so that they change my names, but you know, it's a process. It's very hard. I want my names to be changed to Alicia Hostel, Nalongkoma. I don't want to live a double life. I want to, be, to express myself as a trans person, but it's very hard for me. I have to accept that that situation in Uganda.
0: The fight for freedom still continues. Let's put our hands together for freedom, for freedom, for freedom.
4: Alicia Houston Nalunkuma is a singer, model, and trans activist with the Rainbow Riots NGO in Uganda. In 2017, she released this song, Freedom, with the NGO. We- Being trans technically isn't illegal in Uganda, but there's little understanding of the term, and most Ugandans think trans people are gay. Consensual same-sex activity and the promotion of homosexuality is criminalised here. Music is Alicia's political platform.
5: It's
3: like a political protest. Other things might be really dangerous, but in music, you just go in a studio... are not there, so you record what's on your heart. All our songs are from our hearts. And since music reaches to many people, many people, they can hear our life stories, the situation that we pass through. It's a great platform for us to pass our message to people. So it's the only way how I can express myself. My feelings as a trans person. Me personally, I wear like a man, but if I get a platform like when we have parties, I dress up like a woman. Because I'm a dancer, if I'm going to perform, I always wear my dresses and my heels, but in public, I can't do that. If I get a platform, I always use that platform so that my message, reach out to people who don't really understand about LGBT issues, most especially the trans persons and young people living with HIV.
4: Alicia works with young trans people, helping them get access to healthcare. She also does important work sensitising the police and media to trans issues. But since releasing their album, life has got a lot more difficult and Alicia was even evicted from her home.
3: When you pass by people, they shout at you, you're homosexual, you're gay, why are you doing such things which are not allowed? We will make sure we kill you people. But that, that doesn't stop me from doing what I'm doing because I want my message to reach to people so that LGBT persons can be accepted in Uganda. Uh... If you don't fight, nobody will fight for you. We have to fight for our rights as human beings. Freedom. Freedom.
4: I do hope this was an interesting listen. If you missed the first two in the series about female protest and reproductive rights... Do listen in to them. You can find the series and many more on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Plus, there's more background on the issues you've heard here and much more about the work of the Heinrich Böll Foundation at böhl.de. I'm Abby Darcy and the producer was Marlena Melchior. Thanks for listening.